0: Welcome to Weber Wenzel Legal Insights. With over 150 years of experience and deep industry knowledge, Weber Wenzel is the leading full-service law firm on the African continent. Good day and welcome to our listeners. Um, my name is, is Daryl Dingley and I'm the head of the competition law team at Weber Wenzel. And I'll be hosting a very prestigious uh, guest today. That's the Honourable Judge Dennis Davis. Judge Davis, for those of you who don't know, was the former Judge President of the Competition Appeal Court and was involved in the drafting of both um, the Constitution as well as the Competition Act. Judge Davis has played a significant role in shaping um, competition law and jurisprudence in South Africa. Um, and he recently retired after 21 years of service, but is still actively involved in, in teaching uh, to, to students and, and writing on, 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 on numerous topics. A warm welcome and thank you to, to you for joining us today. We are truly privileged to have you uh, with us um, and to, to, for you to share your insights. It's, it's been a very interesting time for competition law in South Africa, and there's been several developments um, that may have substantial impact on our jurisprudence and our competition law going forward. There's been an an increased focus on mergers being approved subject to conditions that relate to a greater spread of ownership, in particular to increase the levels of ownership um, in in, in historically disadvantaged persons and workers of firms in the market, as well as an increased focus on the role of the Constitution when interpreting and applying uh, competition law. So so without further ado, Judge Davis, I'd like to put, sort of put a fir- the first question to you for, for your comment. So last year, there was a lot of controversy around the Burger King merger prohibition. And that prohibition was largely due to the merger resulting in a reduction of HTP ownership in the merged firm, HTP, HDP you know, ownership of historically disadvantaged persons in the merged firm. Even though this merger was ultimately approved by the Competition Tribunal, what are your views on the prohibition? You know, do you think the tribunal's decision in the Burger King merger should have been approved uh, or should have, should have provided further guidance on the competition authorities' approach to applying their public interest
1: mandate? Thank you, and thank you for inviting me. It's a very difficult question to answer because I found the Burger King decision, the initial one, which is what you're referring to, the, 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 the prohibition almost, if you wish, um, completely inexplicable. Uh, there was no basis for it. And what was tragic about this is that from what I of course I don't have the vantage point that some of you may have because some of you might have worked on this one way. But what I what what based on the information which was made publicly, it appeared, uh, number one, that the acquiring party was was going to uh as it were expand the business and therefore it was arguable that more employees could actually uh, benefit as a result of that particular merger. That's what I understood to be the case. And I certainly was approached um, by an American expert who, are, who who I don't want to name, but is very, very famous in the field. So what on earth has happened to South African competition law when you stop this sort of stuff? Because, precisely because there were clear advantages. And the, what the Burger King um, uh, example illustrated, Darrell, is, I think, to a large degree, a problem which has vexed merger law perhaps before and certainly subsequently in exponential ways, which is what is the purpose of the inquiry that we actually engage in? And if you look at it from that perspective, the question therefore arises in particular, well, what are the public interest um, grounds which would ultimately either justify perhaps a total prohibition of the merger or a series of um, of conditions which would be attached to the merger. Now, if I can just clarify, the I suppose the 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 animal that gave all the trouble was the Walmart case to which I must plead guilty. But the point about that is that what we had in design there, which I think upon reflection is correct, is that you look at it as merger-specific questions. Does the merger uh, for example, cause detriment to employment. In the Walmart case, what they did uh, was ultimately to, to um, effectively reduce the level of employment in order to make the merger more attractive. That, that, that constitutes merger-specific. Uh, it could be merger-specific if, for example, the merger results in, let's say, a factory in one of the firms being closed down in order to create efficiency gains for the merger, that may have an effect on the industry, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But we don't find that any longer. What we find is a series of industrial policy conditions being imposed right across the board with regard to mergers. If you take Burger King, well, what was the point? The point was, well, you know, you can only have a certain constituency who can acquire uh, the uh, the uh, departing shareholders share, and if they are are black shareholders, well, then they must go to the same sort of constituency. You have to ask yourself, why is that merger-specific? Now, it may well be that you have to then say, because there is some issue about ensuring a spread of ownership. But even then, that has to be weighed against the broader considerations. That is no longer done merger conditions no longer have anything to do with the merger they have to do with broader economic policy which may be commendable but certainly shouldn't fall within the purview of the competition thank
0: thank you for that i you know i I just reflecting on that i mean i think that's exactly right we have um you know industrial policy that's now becoming embedded in in competition policy and obviously for, for practitioners and business people out there very difficult for them uh, to to i mean very difficult uh, for anyone to guess with any level of certainty what those what those are because they change all the time and they're obviously very nebulous um, I think then just moving on to to the next um case which which is intriguing and which also i think is going to be talked about for some time and that's the the constitutional court case uh, involving mediclinic and in there i mean what was emphasized there was that you know, competition law, and this was emphasised by the court, competition law must be interpreted and applied with regard to the South African constitution and that practitioners should apply the law with the Competition Act in, in one hand and the constitution in the other. And so, so what effect do you think that this decision is going to have on merger control and competition law more generally, should I, should I add, going forward? And we've also heard, you know, more recently in the Iranda textile mills case where the appeal court dismissed the tribunal's finding of collusion against two blanket suppliers, Um, although we do know that that case is now being appealed apparently to the constitutional court. Do you think that the MediClinic decision will also have an impact on the outcome, you know, of this case?
1: There is a lot that one could talk about with MediClinic. But I would invite your audience and anybody who wants to look at MediClinic to compare the judgment of Justice Rogers at the Competition Appeal Court to the majority judgment of the Chief Justice Nguyen at the Constitutional Court. Why do I say that? Because the Constitutional Court judgment regrettably, and I say this really with sadness, reveals an unfortunate inability to grasp the central problems of competition law. I mean, Justice Rogers in that judgment Essentially, ask a series of very important questions. Well, what is the market that we're dealing with? The sort of thing that you do the very first thing when a client walks into your room with a possible competition question. And of course, in his case, he found that the evidence was sufficiently compelling that Clark, storp and Potterstrom should be seen as two separate, two separate markets. Well, um. That's an evidential question. That's not an issue of public interest, and it's certainly not a legal question. It's an evidential question. There was nothing in the judgment of the Chief Justice which indicated to me at any rate, or any reader for that matter, that there was a plausible factual error that had been made by Justice Rogers uh, in regard to that case, or that he wasn't in effect factually correct in what he did. I'd be surprising given the quality of Justice Rogers' jurisprudence if he was, I should add a person, but be that as it may. But then we go further and we ask ourselves, well, what kind of analysis? So now all of a sudden it's one market, and all of a sudden it's a question um, that section twenty-seven of the Constitution plays a role and meaning that because we're dealing with medical market, a market for provision of health services, we should be concerned with the implications of Section 27 of the Constitution. Let me make it absolutely clear. That move by the Chief Justice is correct and timely. It is perfectly obvious that when you interpret an act, and as important as the Competition Act, and you apply the, facts of the case, uh, the act to the facts of the case, you would always bear in mind that your interpretation, your your outcome, should at best possible promote the spirit report and objects of the Constitution, including the right to health care. So the fact that that is there is a point which I applaud. The problem is that, to use that great analogy from the Australian film The Castle, the Constitution can't just be invoked as a vibe. You can't simply get up and say, oh well, I've got the vibe of the Constitution dictates that. And the question rises, well, why would Section 27 apply in this case? It could only apply if, for example, there were aspects of the application of the of the facts to the law which dictated a different answer. But the, the point there was that to a large extent quite obviously there were sufficient efficiency savings. To be able to conclude on on, on the balance that there was no prejudice in relation to medical costs to even those few people, around about 5% of the entire um, consumers of these products who were uninsured. That itself should have been a warning. But then we drill down into more conceptual problems, Darrell. We ask ourselves the question Justice Rogers obviously made reference to the question of market power because what he understood, which any competition lawyer should understand, um, is that when, what we're talking about, absent public interest questions for the moment, is whether, in fact, a merger is likely to alter the market so as to induce either unilateral or coordinated effects, by which I mean, does it empower the acquiring firm to be able to impose its will on the market unfettered by competition, or will it, in fact, induce the possibility of some coordination between the remaining firms, say, if, it, if, if, if we have a merger that reduces a three-firm market to a two-firm market or something of a similar kind? All of a sudden, the Chief Justice says, I don't know what market power has got to do with this. Judge it wrong. This is all about substantial lessening or preventing of competition. Hello, we know that. But in order to get there, we have to understand the points I've just elucidated. So for the highest court in the land to make such an absolute elementary mistake of a kind that that I would hope my students do not make when they write exams for me, is really upsetting in the extreme, compounded by the further problem of that case. And the further problem of that case is to have eviscerated the supervisory role of the Competition Appeal Court. The Act gives a clear right uh, for a party, an agreed party, for example, whether it's the commission or your client, for example, to appeal to the competition. Every lawyer knows that an appeal is a day know hearing. We look at the record we decide the case. True, in many judgments of which I've written many myself, one says when it comes to economic expertise and a call, one is careful about this because one wants to give deference to the expertise of the tribunal to the extent that that can be justifiable. But the court itself was designed to be an expert court, over time judges would acquire sufficient expertise in competition law and we know that that was designed because to this day to this day of the judges in south africa both uh, i would think retired retired and um, sitting we've always had over the last 15 years 20 years very few commercially literate judges so the idea was could you build up sufficient expertise we're just staying on in order that they would understand that it would be in a specialist tribunal a uh, court well obviously justice rogers fits the bill for a whole range of reasons including the fact that he practiced in the field and is an extraordinarily brilliant lawyer and so you'd kind of think that if you were the constitutional court you'd take account of that and say they have an appeal they have to have an appeal and therefore if they they call it differently it's it's that's the end of it the Chief Justice now has basically has now imposed, rewritten the Act to say that effectively the role of the Competition Appeal Court is a review court. It can only alter the tribunal when there's an egregious mistake or a misdirection. Now, that that's not what the act says. There's no, you know, not even Wittgenstein can interpret the act to basically justify that conclusion. So the point I'm simply making in in, in terms is that the it has a massive implication for appeals going forward. I would suspect that judges of the Competition Appeal Court can only do one of two things, either to say, sorry, we can't help you, or alternatively, no, this is a misdirection of a kind which justifies our jurisdiction. But that's a sort of make-believe world in which you're in. So in summary, I think that that MediClinic is a seminal moment in which it is basically essentially said, or laid to the commission, you know, you can do what you like uh, if you can get it past the tribunal and to hell with everything else. And that is a real worry to me. And I do think, in answer to your last part of the question, that the commission now will be emboldened to basically find their cause of action in the constitution absent any serious interrogation of the competition act.
0: Yeah. Thank you for that. And I mean, that, I mean, you know, recently we heard uh, the commissioner expressing a view that, um, you know, he thought that this was a a landmark and sort of path-breaking judgment to use his words by the constitutional court. And um, that in fact, um, they would be looking to the constitutional court in in many respects. Uh, And I think, so I I do think that's exactly right. We're going to see the commission running off to the constitutional court um, if If the appeal court intervenes in any way and i agree with you i think that they've turned them more into a review body than anything else
1: and you see it wasn't the design of the act the design of the act let's get this clear the design of the act was effectively to have a tribunal and a specialist tribunal a specialist court obviously for constitutional matters the constitutional court always had residual jurisdiction. There was a time that the Supreme Court of Appeal asserted jurisdiction, rather disastrously in many cases, you only have to look at its judgment in Senvest to just realize what happens when you give people who actually otherwise are really good judges an issue in which they have absolutely no idea, because they've got no economic training of any kind, um, what happens. And the, the, the constitutional drafters, or at least the amenders, were wise enough to take them out of the equation. But then... And for a number of years, the the Constitutional Court, I think, rather prudently took the view, really, unless there's a constitutional question here, let's leave alone. That's no longer the case, and the the commission will be emboldened to deal with this. Now, does that mean, in my argument, let me make it absolutely clear, that the Constitution has no role? No. As I've indicated earlier, it should. So if you've got, for example, a case with medicines or pharmaceutical products, it will be so that if you take things like excessive pricing as an example there, you would, in the back of your mind, think that section twenty seven uh, of the Constitution must have some weight in the way in which you assess returns of necessities which keep people healthy, but that's where it plays in it's a nuanced approach which should have a role. I regret that we never did it to the extent that we should have in my twenty years on the court, and I should say. We would have, in the in the case which never got to us, which was, of course, the antiretroviral case, which was going to be brought by the Treatment Action Campaign, literally years and years and years ago, but was settled beforehand. That was clear, that either on the essential facility or assess the pricing doctrine, you would have interpreted that through the prism of the constitution to give some form of relief. But that would have been after a serious engagement with the sections themselves.
0: Well, that brings us an end to our discussion, and I would really like to thank you, Judge Davis, for sharing your insights, uh, and and again, also to our listeners for joining us today. I'm your host, Daryl Dingley, and I thank you for listening to Weber Wenzel Legal Insights. You have been listening to Weber Wenzel Legal Insights. You can find and subscribe to the podcast on all major platforms. For more expert legal insights and updates, visit WeberWenzel.com.